Well, can I say, uh, first of all, a very uh, warm welcome to the Department for Continuing Education, uh, which for the last uh, 140 years has been providing access to the research and scholarship of Oxford University and transforming lives through uh, providing opportunities uh, for part-time and other students through its outreach and enga public engagement activities. And over the last 20 years or so, has been uh, enabling people to undertake uh, Oxford degrees on a part-time basis. For I know some of you know the department very well. Uh, others may be visiting us for the first time, in which case, can I encourage you to look at all the literature and information down in the, uh, in the lobby and reception area as you came through. Okay, <clears throat> party games, coalitions in British politics. If I can get this to... May not resort to the mouse. There we go. It was against the backdrop of a violent thunderstorm that Benjamin Disraeli declared to the House of Commons in December 1852, this too I know, that England does not love coalitions. Disraeli, described as a self-made man who worshipped his maker, continued... A coalition has before this been successful, but coalitions, though successful, have always found this, that their triumph has been brief. Towards the end of his life, the Liberal leader and Prime Minister Herbert Asquith wrote, nothing is so demoralizing to the tone of public life or so belittling to the stature of public men as the atmosphere of a coalition. <laughs> the political term coalition has always carried with it negative connotations of a sacrifice of, or compromise of principles in order to secure power. Um, as the Conservative Prime Minister Lord Derby dubbed the Rupert of Debate, stated to Parliament in 1866, by government of coalition, one understands a government of men of different parties in which each, to a greater or lesser extent, sacrifices his individual opinions for the purpose of obtaining united political strength. We all know that it is always exceedingly repugnant to an Englishman to sacrifice his private opinion for expediency. The word uh, coalition actually entered English usage in the 17th century in a religious context, denoting the growing together of parts or coalescence, as in God and humanity by coalition becoming one nature in Christ. By the later 17th century, it was used in scientific discourse, meaning coalescence in one body or mass. It became a political term in the 18th century, the early 18th century, denoting the combining of distinct parties without incorporation into one body. And the negative connotations of coalition were affirmed by the unhappy experience of the eight-month Fox North Coalition Ministry of 1783. 
During the 19th century, we can see the term coalition was more often used by hostile opponents to decry ministerial arrangements than as a badge of honor. A more positive and principled description was that of a broad-based or broad-bottomed government. 18th century terms meaning the coming together of different politicians in the national interest and in support of the monarch. Uh, William the Younger Pitt's ministry, after junction with the Portland Whigs, uh, the Ministry of All the Talents in 1806-7, Lord Liverpool's government after the adherence of the Grenvilleites in 1822, uh, Canning's short-lived government of 1827 were all perceived in these terms. Likewise, Lord Grey's reform ministry of 1830 to 1834, containing Whigs, Huskisonites, reformers, and an ultra-Tory, was not commonly referred to as a coalition, but as a government brought together in the national interest in order to secure a necessary reform of parliament. This resonated into the 20th century when Ramsay MacDonald in 1931 formed a coalition government which was described as a national government, bringing Labour, Conservative and Liberal politicians together at a moment of severe economic crisis. Punch in 1931 depicted Ramsay MacDonald as the master chemist blending together the elements of labor, liberalism, and conservatism into a new uh, political compound. Far less flattering was Winston Churchill's description of Ramsay MacDonald in 1931 in uh, the House of Commons as the boneless wonder. Um, but the this election poster for the national government in 1931 captured the spirit of what was presented as a national government, bringing, as it says, the team together uh, behind the national interest. This was interesting and important because the recent and lurid, often sometimes tawdry, experience of Lloyd George's coalition of a decade before had done little to displace the negative connotations of coalition government. In 1922, the Daily Mail had talked of the poison of coalition. And as one critic at the time said of Lloyd George, he couldn't see a belt without hitting below it. <laughs> Self-avowed coalition governments come into being in a variety of circumstances, but I want to suggest to you that one can discern two types of coalition government. First, those that are formed in the context of a national emergency such as war. And in these circumstances, they are seen as a temporary expedient in dire times and the Asquith and Lloyd George coalitions of the First World War and Churchill's government during the Second World War are obvious examples. Uh, 
of this. And I think MacDonald's national government of 1931 is another. But there is, I think, a second kind of coalition government in British politics when on other occasions coalition governments portend a fusion of parties. They mark a profound process of party realignment. And here, temporary arrangements cast a far longer shadow. And examples of this kind of ministerial coalition, I think, are the Aberdeen Coalition of 1852 to 55 and Salisbury's government of 1895. This is a, the Aberdeen Coalition cabinet. And in the case of the Aberdeen Coalition of the 1850s, I think you can see it foreshadowing the formal foundation of the Parliamentary Liberal Party in 1859. Supposedly, the Aberdeen cabinet brought together a distillation of talent. Uh, the Aberdeen Coalition, lasting a little over two years, however, has not gone down to posterity as a great success. One cabinet minister, Lord Palmerston, privately described Aberdeen as an example of antiquated imbecility. Um, this is Palmerston here pointing at the map. You can see Lord Aberdeen uh, there staring off into the, uh, into the middle distance. Its major achievement was William Gladstone's landmark budget of 1853. And here we have Gladstone as Chancellor of the Exchequer sitting there. But interestingly, Gladstone himself preferred to describe the Aberdeen ministry as a mixed government rather than as a coalition. The formation of a mixed government, Gladstone declared, was only warrantable when ministers had a most thorough confidence in the honour, integrity and fidelity of each other. When they were in agreement upon all the great questions of the day and when a great and palpable emergency of state called for it. Gladstone always set the moral bar very high. <laughs> uh, and one can sympathize with Disraeli's comment that uh, Gladstone holding the ace of trumps up his sleeve didn't irritate him, but what really stuck in his throat was Gladst Gladstone's absolute conviction that it was God who had put it there. <laughs> Yet the Aberdeen coalition did not survive the mismanagement of the Crimean War and the graphic reports of the Times correspondent W.H. Russell bringing descriptions of appalling ineptitude to the breakfast tables of the British public. Coalitions are often the political consequence of war, as in 1915 and 1940. The Aberdeen coalition was brought down by war. As Gladstone observed, the majority against it not only brought us down, but sent us down with such a thwack that one heard one's head thump as it hit the ground. But the historical importance of the Aberdeen coalition proved its anticipation of the crucial coalescence of those political elements comprising the Parliamentary Liberal Party founded in 1859. The great Liberal Party after 1859 of Gladstone and his successors. Similarly, the 1895 government of Salisbury, I think, marked as a coalition a profound process of party realignment. 
photograph, I think, captures some of Salisbury's Tory uh, world-weary scepticism uh, by the 1880s, the 1890s. And in the case of the Salisbury government of 1895, the process of rear party realignment was the merger of conservatives and liberal unionists. In 1895, the Conservative Unionist Party was born. By 1912, liberal unionists had relinquished any claim to an independent existence. According to Beatrice Webb, the liberal unionists, that little company of upright, narrowly enlightened, well-bred men, had been ignominiously absorbed. A fit ending for a company of prigs. So signing off. The peacetime coalition of Lloyd George in 1918 also marked a profound process of party realignment, the demise of the Liberals as a major party of government. By 1945, British politics had become a contest between two major parties, Conservative and Labour, who were to alternate in power. And after 1945, the binary structure of a British two-party system was seen as natural, a perception, I think, reinforced by the rise of political science as an academic field in Britain during the 1950s. The paradigm of British politics became the alternation in government of two rigidly aligned and ideologically united national parties. This brings us to the events of May 2010, when the first peacetime British coalition government of the 21st century was formed, the Cameron-Clegg Alliance. Photographs here of them obviously entering together into 10 Downing Street, the announcement of the terms and aspirations of the uh, conservative liberal democratic coalition government in the Rose Garden at Downing Street and a very much more skeptical view of the coalition from private eye in uh, May 2010. What does the history of peacetime coalitions in Britain reveal to us? What warnings does history offer to the conservative liberal democrat enterprise? I think there are three. The three, what I will call presumptuously, Hawkins rules. Hawkins rule number one. The prospect of the next election hangs over such coalitions like the sword of Damocles. The doctrine of collective responsibility in government requires the coalition to be jointly and unitedly committed to policies and decisions. Yet, in the not-too-distant future, there hovers the prospect of the next election. And what is going to happen in the next election? 
Do you campaign as separate parties? Uh, in which case, you have to engage to some extent in criticism of the uh, coalition partner and the policies and immediately shear away from the notion of collective responsibility? Or do you, as in 1918, with the Lloyd George coalition, enter some sort of coupon arrangement where you jointly put up candidates? to try and avoid a direct contest between conservative and liberal democrat uh, candidates. All of this is very tricky and complicated. And as I say, uh, the election, the prospect of the next election, hangs over the coalition like the sword of Damocles. Hawkins rule number one. Hawkins rule number two. Exiting gracefully from such coalitions is far harder than entering into them. As in marriage, the elation of the nuptial celebrations give way to the bitterness and recrimination of divorce. And again, it raises this prospect of how do you enter into the uh, campaigning for electoral support and popular endorsement, uh, having been committed to tie to each other in government. Finally, Hawkins rule number three. The dynamics of such coalitions operate very differently at different political levels, depending on whether you are looking at the cabinet, parliament, or the electorate. And the further you move from the political center, the harder harmonious coalition politics are to maintain. The warning encapsulated in rule number three is retribution seeps in from the grassroots. And it is down in the constituencies, it is down amongst the electorate, as I say, that harmonious coalition politics are hardest to secure and maintain. Uh, and one could talk about lots of examples of that. And I think, as I'll be saying in a moment, I don't think the Cameron Clegg, the current coalition government, is any exception at all to that. And I think there are clear indications of prospective uh, retribution seeping in from the grassroots. So these, I think, are the three historical warnings drawn from our historical experience of peacetime coalitions, which are important to bear in mind when we think about the current coalition government. The prospect of the next general election and the difficulties that raises, the uh, difficulty, as I say, of exiting gracefully from such coalitions without bitterness and recrimination, and finally, the difficulty of maintaining and sustaining harmonious coalition politics down at the grassroots in the constituencies. I think the weight of these historical warnings is emphasized by some of the specific circumstances surrounding the formation of the conservative liberal democratic 
coalition government in May 2010. And I just want to point to what I think are some of the very important, let's say, specific uh, circumstances that surrounded the formation of the current coalition, which emphasized the difficulties of the three historical warnings I've identified. I seem to be working in patterns of three, so there are three things I will pick up on um, uh, to do with the events surrounding the current coalition, which I think are important. First, previous peacetime coalitions, as in 1895, 1918 and 1931 were formed before general elections. They were then endorsed by the electorate in those general elections by, in fact, landslide majorities. In 2010, electors did not vote for a coalition government. Voters and commentators were guessing what sort of coalition might result if there were a hung parliament. And many guessed wrong, including The Guardian, which advocated a vote for the Liberal Democrats to create a progressive coalition of the left. The Cameron Clegg coalition, unlike its predecessors, lacks the legitimacy of an electoral mandate. Coalition government in 2010 did not issue from the party manifestos, but from intense private negotiation. And we all remember those four days or so of intense negotiation over the weekend uh, as the representatives of the three parties met with each other to see what sort of coalition between which partners could be uh, put together. That's very important, and as I say, that is a circumstance surrounding the formation of the current coalition government, which is different from the previous coalition governments that I mentioned. Second thing I would point to is that the 2010 coalition is the only one to result from a hung parliament. This is the cartoon of the uh, morning after in which Gordon Brown is looking very bloody and bruised and battered, but uh, obviously David Cameron and uh, Nick Clegg are not looking in hugely better shape either. Uh, this is the uh, reflection of the, as it were, inconclusive uh, result of the election. In 1895, 1918, 1931, the Conservatives, had they wished to do so, could have governed without the support of any other party. In 2010, this was not the case. It is, in that sense, then, a coalition of political necessity. The third <coughs> point I would want to make about the character of the current coalition. Again, looking back at previous peacetime coalitions in 1895, 1918, 1931, it was a section of the Liberal Party which joined the Conservatives in government. In 2010, it was the Liberal Democratic Party as a whole 
that entered into coalition in government. And I think this raises the political stakes for the Liberal Democrats considerably. In 1895, coalition was the outcome of liberal division, the split between Gladstonian liberals and liberal unionists. In 1918, coalition, I think, triggered liberal division, the split between Asquithian liberals versus Lloyd George coalition liberals. And in 1931, I think coalition cemented liberal division, the split between liberals and national liberals. But all three coalitions were partnerships between the Conservatives and a section of the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party has never entered a government coalition solely with the Labour Party, although it has, as in 1929 and 1977-8, supported Labour governments from the outside. But in 2010, coalition with the Conservatives embraced a united Liberal Democratic Party. And for this reason, I think the historical warnings of peacetime coalition government bear down on the Liberal Democratic Party as a whole. Again, I don't think the risks, the political risks, could be higher. The political trophies that the Liberal Democrats looked for as the reward for coalition were, amongst other things, electoral reform. As we know, they, what they wanted, what they had campaigned for, was proportional representation. In fact, what was offered to the country was the option to adopt the alternative vote system. And again, as we all know, it was rejected in a national referendum. Reform of the House of Lords was another important uh, reward that Liberal Democrats were looking for out of coalition. Um, but I think it's pretty clear now that Clegg's proposal for the reform of the House of Lords is now pretty much dead and buried. Reform of public services, uh, such as the National Health Service. Uh, Andrew Lansley's health reforms were substantially amended in the context of uh, coalition government but it's still not clear, I think, that they have been a political success. So, going back to my characterization of two kinds of coalitions in British politics, that categorization I suggested to you, what sort of coalition are we watching at the moment? Is the Cameron-Clegg partnership a temporary expedient at a moment of dire national emergency? Or is it an episode pretending a realignment of national party politics? I think perhaps it started out as the former, but as we go on is looking rather more like an example of the latter. Um, some of the reasons I say that are to do with the sources of electoral support in the Liberal Democratic Party, for the Liberal Democratic Party in 2010, which really came from three major sources. One was the party faithful, 
The second group were disaffected Labour voters who believed, uh, a la The Guardian, that they could uh, bring about a progressive, moderate left coalition in government. And then a much smaller number of Conservative voters hoping for moderate centrist government. And it seems to me at the moment, from what uh, uh, one sees, uh, that all three sources of votes are under threat at the next general election. And this brings us back to that sword of Damocles hanging over the, the, the coalition cabinet. The party faithful down in the constituencies, I think uh, we know, uh, are not... Uh, feeling entirely comfortable about being the uh, partners of conservative uh, policies and their policies which they uh, disagree with, and there are aspects of uh, coalition governments, coalition government which they are feeling uh, have not delivered what the party, certainly the party manifesto, but the coalition agreement have hoped for. So there is the prospect of split or division or erosion or falling away of uh, support amongst the, the party faithful for the Liberal Democrats. Disaffected Labour voters who voted Lib Dem in May 2010 have seen that strategic vote deliver the Conservatives into 10 Downing Street and in state a Conservative Prime Minister. And there is a very strong likelihood that they're not likely to want to repeat that strategic option with that sort of risk um, again. So <clears throat> the electoral support for the Lib Dems, which was clearly uh, strong in May 2010, I think is under all sorts of pressure. And one of the Liberal Democrats' hopes on entering the coalition was the inauguration of a multi-party system, which would be more fluid <clears throat> than the rigid two-party system, which had prevailed since 1945. Ironically, or disastrously for the Liberal Democrats, I think the electoral outcome of coalition government may well be a reaffirmation of the resilience of the two-party mould. And if it is, then it's an interesting confirmation of Disraeli's warning of 160 years ago that England does not love coalitions. Thank you very much. <clears throat>